Hello, and welcome back to the Guns or Pegs podcast. This is a brand new series, series three. I know, I'm surprised as you are. In case you're new to the podcast, my name's George Brown, and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. And as per usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Chris, we're back. We are. It's particularly exciting. We've muddled together the bones of a third series, a couple of bones of which are actually really exciting. So I'm looking forward to this one. We've run for quite a while. We've, uh, we're sort of spreading it out uh, in the run up to the game fair, which we'll come back to in a minute and our party. But of course, the, uh, the most exciting thing is that we're back at 4pm on a Wednesday having a drink, <laughs> which I enjoy. I've missed it. It's only been a, a few weeks, but it's nice to be back in the saddle. Really looking forward to getting into it again. So um, we better crack on, I think. And Chris, will you tell us a bit about our guest today? So this is the conservation episode. And our guest this week, he's got what I consider to be one of the most stressful roles in our world. And a quick look through his Twitter feed and you'll have steam coming from your ears. Time and time again, he holds the opponents of shooting to account with science, facts and figures. He's responsible for the marketing communication of the absolutely vital and wonderful charity that is the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. It's Andrew Gilruth. Welcome, Andrew. Chris, that's extremely generous and, and kind of you. I'm slightly concerned that this is you're picking over the bones of what's left, but we'll certainly do our best this afternoon. Andrew, um, I, I just mentioned your Twitter feed, and it's something that I always think of when I think of you because of that. The, some of the, the communication you get caught up in. What's the uh, what's the most frustrating thing someone said to you in the last few weeks? I think there's quite a lot where people take a very binary approach on, on a subject such as heather burning, where it is assumed the only people uh, that are burning heather are gamekeepers and that it only does damage and actually it's burning the peat. And this has become so binary and so oversimplified, it becomes quite frustrating. And right now where we're seeing wildfires ripping across the countryside you know the prospect that people are seriously contemplating removing one of the tools uh, to reduce fuel load in our countryside is terrifying those that actually have to fight wildfires and, and not only people commenting in this country but commenting around the world commenting on, to us saying what on earth do you think you're doing and the contrast and attitude uh, is, is astonishing I saw the, the bid in Parliament from the MP for somewhere in Sheffield and, oh my gosh, just infuriating, just totally misunderstanding the facts. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot that we still need to know about heather burning. So we shouldn't be under any illusion, but also we don't know a great deal about mowing it either. And we, knowledge and understanding about just leaving it altogether is not that clear either and a lot of the science is conflicting you can find if you have decided what your position is you can go and find various pieces of science to support it and claim that science is on your side and in fact it's very poorly understood and particularly when we start looking at things like the impact on uh, flooding uh, on water quality you know these are there wasn't even a technology available 10 years ago to be able to study these things i mean it is really the development of, of new techniques which has allowed these studies to happen and actually we need to build up far more information and don't forget now you've got water monitoring equipment which you can take any sample from any stream anywhere in the world and you'd be able to find something in it you know because technology now is so advanced we just didn't even have this before so you get quite a lot of alarmist uh, statements being made and I think 
that is massively unhelpful when things are polarized and made made oversimplified. There's been quite a lot of, um, I mean, there's obviously the the wildfires you know, caused by barbecues and what have you of, of late, but there wasn't there something about um, one of the one of the authorities as well who would um, who caused a, a fire um, in order to to clear land for planting trees or something like that that got out of control. Is that have I imagined that? So, so burning is used by all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. And there's a place uh, not not far. I mean, I'm I'm down in the edge of the New Forest uh, in Hampshire, but in actual fact, you'd only have to, in the New Forest here uh, the vegetation is burnt too to be able to keep the gorse under control and improve the grazing uh, for the ponies. If I was to go a little bit further west into Dorset, there's heath there which is controlled in a burnt way, uh, burning in the winter in order to improve the habitat for butterflies. You can go over to Northern Ireland and you can see where AOMBs over there, they're using controlled burning in order to reduce the fuel load to avoid the wildfires or the damage which is done by wildfires. Because wildfires, when they get going, will get down into the peat and you'll lose several feet of peat if you have a bad fire rather than just burning the vegetation quickly off the top. So all the dry, all the dry weather we're seeing at the moment. I mean, it, where I am in Kent, it's been ridiculous. We haven't had rain in God knows how long. I mean, we're we're just sitting on a even bigger debate going on this year, aren't we? Yeah. So a, a firefighter will tell you you only need three things for a fire. All you need is the fuel load, uh, the oxygen, and an ignition source. And if you consider. You know, when you hear the gamekeepers talk about, you know, you look at the heather and the old rank heather and they just call it mini timber. You know, it's literally just just building up these layers. And it's easy to forget. I mean, there are people like my dad who who were fighting as soldiers that were sent to go and fight wildfires in this country in the 1950s, where the only tool which they really had were bulldozers, because you had to then bulldoze the peak down to the bedrock in order to create the fire break. And they were going out day after day, just waiting for it to pop back up. Because the problem is when you've got it in deep peat and if the peat has dried out, uh, the peat's got cracks in it, the fire gets down into, the, into those cracks, it spreads underground and pops up again somewhere else. So you won't get it out until it actually rains. So you need to contain the fire as best you can. And there are places in Yorkshire where in the 1950s, where the wildfires burnt off so much peat, we actually discovered, you know, ancient, you know, Stone Age settlements and things, which just weren't, no one had even seen before. Um, so you're talking about losing several feet of peat. Um, and you've got to remember that 12 centimetres of peat takes about 200 years to fall. So you're, you're releasing an awful lot of carbon when you have a wildfire. So this very simple narrative um, about vegetation burning is bad and it's burning peat is is unhelpful we need to all stand back and think about this you know much more carefully in fact there are no more owners that i've met in this country who if they were told to stop burning and something else was better or there was a, a logical reason to follow it then of course they would as they do at the moment where there are certain places where they have to mow rather than do this controlled winter burning so you know we just need to build that evidence to actually take people along with us rather than tell them they should allow a fuel load to build up on their land. The problem is theirs because a landowner can't walk away. The advantage for an activist is you can insist that somebody does something. But when there is a huge problem, the activist has sloped off, 
doesn't take any responsibility, but the landowner is left there to now try and restore it. So we should be, should be really thoughtful about taking the landowners uh, with us. I can see, Andrew, that, and hear that, that this is frustrating you again. So I think it's probably about time uh, we did something about that. So I'm going to ask you, Andrew, what's that you're drinking? We're at a huge advantage here because we have a, a brewery in our, in our village. I live in the village of Downton. And we've got a, our own brewery here. And I suppose we're spoilt for choice because we, as a village, we can nip round there on Friday evening. And um, they're more than happy to help us out and guide us through their selection of beers. But Honey Blonde <laughs> is, their, is, their, is my favourite sipple from them. Honey Blonde sounds like a pole dancer. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and yes, that was something that uh, Jonathan Young pointed out to me when I, uh, when I poured him a pint too. <laughs> George, what are you drinking? Well, I, as you might have anticipated, Chris, I've got a glass of whiskey again today. As a family, we used to have a, a little cottage on the northwest coast of Scotland in a place called Glenelg, which is a sort of properly remote, one road in over the mountain. Um, and we used to go up as, as a family for sort of two or three weeks around this time of year, which is why I was thinking of it. I mean, it's an amazing place. The, the pub used to not close unless they got a phone call from the other side of the hill to say the police were on their way, <laughs> at, which point you, at which point you had about half an hour to clear out. I mean, I was too young at that stage to take advantage of it, but I certainly remember various adult members of the family rolling in at ungodly hours of the morning. So I've got whiskey from the Isle of Skye, which is the nearest distillery to Glenelg, and it's Talisker, and it's very peaty. Uh, I've said before, I like those peaty, smoky ones. Um, so it sort of ties in quite nicely with what we were talking about just before. Good man. Chris, what have you got? Uh, so as ever, I'm not going strong like you are. Sticking to my beers and my ciders. Uh, but I'm going on a bit of a tour, I'm, I've decided, in Series 3. And I'm starting off in a in an awesome bit of shooting country. So I'm I, my beer is from Massam, North Yorkshire. It's probably one place that that means this is coming from so the black sheep brewery i've got the black sheep ale and i thought it was particularly apt for this podcast as well because massam is on the edge of the yorkshire dales an area which is of course under the spotlight when it comes to conservation and hen harriers in particular so i'm linking it all together it's almost like we've done this before chris (laughs) it's all seeming (laughs) getting good at my links but anyway yes so hen harriers are coming up we weren't you weren't going to get off the podcast andrew without talking about those so we'll do that in a minute (laughs) That's excellent news. <laughs> right. Okay. So let's move on swiftly and we'll go on to the next segment, which is uh, whose bird is it anyway? Now, um, I confess I had forgotten where we'd got to in the alphabet with the fake names. So I'm going back to the beginning. <laughs> so, Andrew, just to fill you in, this is the segment of the podcast where we ask our listeners to send in their shooting dilemmas and their quandaries and we try and help them out. We've had some success yeah, so far. Definitely. Um, We've actually I helped think people. it's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah, um, more by accident than design, but um, <laughs> we, we do try and give some some useful advice and have a bit of a laugh about it as well. So keeping our correspondence anonymous, this communication comes from somebody I've chosen to call Arthur, and he has written, whilst listening to your excellent podcasts and chuckling at the shooting dilemma section, it occurred to me that I actually have one myself that I would appreciate your advice with. I helped to collect guns to take up the let days on a small family shoot. Wonderfully, as ever within the shooting community, the 25 or so participating guns comprise many characters from a variety of backgrounds. However, there is one chap who has a major personal problem. In His breath is so terribly unpleasant 
that it could probably stun a submerged blue whale. <laughs> this leads to an unseemly scramble, like manic musical chairs, to not have to sit near him on the gun bus. Those that get too close invariably emerge looking as if they've had a dose of Novichok as they stumble off to their peg, hoping their blurred vision will clear before the drive starts. A bigger gun bus is not an option, and the sides are fixed on the current one. We must have been the only shoot in the country that welcomed the wearing of masks. <laughs> My dilemma is that he is otherwise popular, humorous, and a good shot, attending most days, which is good for the shoot finances. He's always the first to book and pays up promptly, so it's hard to refuse his bookings on the grounds of no peg availability. What should I do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I wouldn't know where to start. Andrew, you're absolutely going first. Well, that's very kind, very kind of you. I... I <laughs> I th I think I'd suggest to Arthur that per perhaps you could ask this gentleman to drive the gun bus, and then actually everybody else would be all right <laughs> in the back. Oh, it's about the only thing I can I can think of because then we could we need to be promoted uh, to driver. That's such a good <laughs> idea, Andrew. You've pulled it out the bag there because if you if you sort of say that right for this season, right? Don't know whoever the current driver is, stand them down, and then say right this season we're going to take it in terms of the driving first day you put him in charge and everyone raves about how good a driver he was so that he really wants to do it again <laughs> <laughs> so you position it that you can't get out of it i quite like that i mean there's this sort of subtle one you know hand around a tin of mints something like that maybe that could so work it sounds as if the tin of mints is not going to be quite enough so let's we'll see <laughs> or, or yeah, how about how about someone brings along what they think is the newest controller of covid it's a spray Basically, it's a mouthwash spray and they make it mandatory on this shoot that you have to spray and someone labels it up as like COVID killer or whatever. And they and then at the start of the shoot, they gives everyone a spray in the mouth and then says, right, you're OK to shoot together today. <laughs> it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a useful tactic to make, make people feel very important. I also know another friendly shoot where there's one of the guns one of the team is desperate to be the shoot captain so every year they vote him in as a shoot captain and they get him to do a brief and get him to organize everything and everyone ignores everything he says and do whatever they what they originally planned to do anyway <laughs> um, which causes a certain degree of frustration but it's amazing how it bombs them all together so it does it can work yeah i mean this guy seems like he's good to be around barring this so you don't want to upset him and you know that kind of quiet word in the ear hey listen mate might want to go and see a dentist or it's that's not gonna that's not gonna work you know it could go could backfire yeah perhaps you could also find a an, an additional role that needs to be done so a checking or placing the pegs uh, in advance so actually it needs to go in front of the gun bus uh <laughs> with with uh, one of the pickers up to go and go and check everything's in the right place um might be another tactic yeah i like it i think i think the driving the gun bus is a great idea particularly if it's a tractor driven one yeah he's not even in the same vehicle yeah Perfect. <laughs> what, what, what could possibly go wrong <laughs> anything to avoid having to say anything about the issue <laughs> yeah you do have to be careful i once have an experience of the the other extreme where in a former life member of staff who she frequently used an awful lot of perfume <laughs> now this this wouldn't be a concern to to most people apart from you know other ladies on the team became upset because they felt that this they were going home smelling of this perfume uh, and this became a, a really big issue and uh, being a, a young manager 
I did my best to sort it out, and I failed hopelessly. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I was, it was a horrible situation to, to be in. I thought you, I thought you were going to say that the, the, the blokes in the team were getting in trouble no. when they went home smelling of some other lady's perfume. No. No, it never even occurred to me that this was a, this was a problem. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it was. I, I tried to speak to her about it and, and be sort of calm and normal, but... Um, it, it most definitely did not work. <laughs> well, uh, I think if Arthur could let us know if, if he manages to get this chat to drive the gun bus, it'd be, be quite interesting to hear how he gets on. Obviously, definitely, please do get in touch. But Andrew's advice there, very sound. Thank you, Andrew. So Horace from season two, we got to H. We must have got to H, George. Maybe, yeah, at least. Oh, maybe we got past H. We had an Igor, didn't we? So anyway, Horace from season two <laughs> emailed in to say that he'd made the classic mistake of not being totally honest to his other half about how much shooting costs and at the time we said we'd give him a free premium membership and some advice on how to find some good deals anyway he's been back in touch and he says hi both horace here lovely to hear the podcast and all the comments i'd appreciate any assistance or pointers you can give to ensure we both enjoy some further days together next season finally i really appreciate your offer of a free membership to guns on pegs premium however i'm already a member good man uh, so wondered if it would be at all possible if you please donate the offer to a young gun on my behalf. It's imperative we all try and do our bit to protect the guns of tomorrow. Incredibly kind of Horace. I almost feel like we need to give him his real name now to give, for being so kind. <laughs> but we thought, what an awesome idea. So we'll do that. And, and actually, since the premium membership has got even better. So the premium membership has always been about getting the best deals, which is why it was so applicable to him. But we've now got all of the best shooting magazines involved we've recently done a deal shooting times field sports the field and gun dog journal all involved in guns on pegs premium now so you can now read them online when they come out so this membership is now really sought after so i think we can do something here george yeah so just on the first bit of the email in terms of finding good deals it just so happens that uh, this week we published an article on finding affordable shooting they had some not very helpful tips in there and also some very useful and excellent of 400 pound and under shooting opportunities so definitely check that out but on finding a suitable recipient for this premium membership i think the answer is to throw it back out to the listeners and ask people to uh, to email in pod at gunsonpegs.com and uh, nominate deserving young guns yeah we'll take advantage of it good idea uh, and so yeah just a couple of lines saying why you think this person in particular is is deserving and you know why you think they should have it and we can make a choice I expect it's going to be massively oversubscribed. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so we've got, obviously, the party we've talked about. Um, and uh, <laughs> another chap, Fred, uh, whose brother in the last series was blackmailing him in the, in the Who's Bird Was It Anyway? Episode six, I think it was. He's been back in touch to say that he's not only super excited to hear about our party at the game fair, but also, he knows a magician who he can bring along to help entertain our guests. We're making really good progress. So we put a call out for people that could bring along something awesome to make this party really, really great fun for everyone involved. So absolutely, Fred, we'd love to take you up on that offer. And we're really looking forward to seeing there. Make sure you wear your garters. Obviously, if you're not wearing socks, put them around your head and we'll come and find you. Yeah, so Andrew, obviously, you're now officially a part of the podcast family, a member of the most noble order of the garters. So you're going to get some of our very, very popular shooting sock garters but also an invitation to our excellent party you're going to be coming you failed to tell everybody what time and which day it's going to be on because then we can all be there <laughs> so i'm sure that we're coming out soon uh well it, it, it's on the saturday night at the game fair 
I can't actually remember the date. When, when is the game fair? Someone tell me. End of July. Quickly looking. It is Saturday the 24th of July. And Andrew, we can count you in, yeah? Yeah, it's in the diary. Good man. Just putting it in now. <laughs> Excellent. Right, so we've also had another email about the, the party. Sean Hartree has been in touch and says he hasn't got any specific talent or talented friends who he can bring to the party, uh, but it is his birthday that day. So can he come on that basis? And I think just for sheer cheek, I think the answer is yes, <laughs> of course. And, and bring a plus one. <laughs> uh, and um, <clears throat> do you know, I had a call the other day. I've actually had two calls. So firstly, Simon West, who's head of the Gun Trade Association, he got in touch to say, I was listening to the last podcast, the Steel Shot episode with Paul James, and he'd like to bring along a cannon to officially open the party, to which I bit his arm off. That's amazing. <laughs> is, this, is, the cannon, <laughs> is the cannon Steel Shot proofed? Don't even go there. <laughs> well, perhaps we, have, perhaps we have a special entry for those that have got a cannon, because my youngest son happens to have one as well, which can travel. So I think maybe we should have a collection of guns. I think we should have a cannon off. Yeah. Um, it's quite <laughs> impressive. We'll put blanks in them. They'll be okay. Hmm. <laughs> um, and so finally, um, Tim Maddams, uh, our guest from the first series, uh, general great friend of Guns on Pegs and chef extraordinaire, he rung me to say, again, listening to the pod, I think I can do something to help at the party. Is it okay if I bring along a fire engine to serve food from? <laughs> what, like an actual real life, you know, ladder and hose? He's got a properly old school fire engine converted into essentially a kitchen. And he wants to bring it along, serve food at the game fair. And also he said to me, because the Country Food Trust is a charity of the game fair, massive, I'm a trustee of it, big, we're big supporters. We are going to raise some money on the evening for them as well. And we said that basically some of the proceeds from the food that Tim's going to be serving out of his fire engine will go to the CFT to feed people in need. So double whammy there. That is amazing. Oh, this is really coming together. Yes, it is, isn't it? So we've got a, we've got a cannon off. <laughs> we've got an amazing chef doing the food. We've got a, we've, uh, what's the other one? A magician. A magician. Okay, so we need more. We, need, we do need acts, don't we? We need jugglers and things like that. We need a band. Oh, yes. Yes, we need more people who email, please, pod at gunsonpegs.com. Uh, and I promise I'll book you for my wedding as well. Right. So listening to all of this, I know you're all going to be desperate to come. So you'll be wondering how you can get your hands on a ticket to the party. We do have a limit on the guest list of 300 people. So we're still working it out exactly. But what I can say is that if you have already featured on the podcast, if you're a proud owner of these Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters, you are automatically invited. And if you get in touch with us with something special for the party, like a magician, a cannon or a fire engine or whatever, then you will also receive an invitation. We will keep adding to the guest list as the as the episodes go on and keep releasing further details on how you might be able to get involved. But so, yeah, keep those emails coming in, your confessions, all that stuff, pod at gunsonpegs.com. And we look forward to, to seeing what you've got to say. Yeah, and we're dying. To, we're also dying to know how we get on the, uh, the guest list to the wedding, Chris. <laughs> uh, and actually, I can... <laughs> and I, and actually, I can assure you that a cannon is a very useful thing to have at a wedding because it gets everyone's attention uh, when, when you when you want to make an announcement because it suddenly goes very very quiet. Um, so that's just an idea. I do appreciate that. That's a good idea, Andrew. So your son's cannon. I'll be uh, I'll be making a yep. note. Just a quick one on the Steel Shot episode last time, the end of the last series. Listening back to it, George and I were having a bit of a giggle, and we we kind of thought that although we're not known for big advice here on the podcast uh we maybe thought that our advice could have been a little bit more helpful uh 
And so um, when it comes to the use of steel cartridges in your gun, there is a sort of serious undertone to this situation. Anyway, if you're still unsure, pick your phone up, Google using steel in our guns. There's a great little video that, that's hosted by Tim Bonner of the Countryside Alliance. He did it with Simon Reinhold. It should clear things up. Anyway, I'll leave that there. Please do go and have a look because it, it, it's an important issue that people do need to be aware of. Great. Right. So time to talk about GWCT, Andrew. I think the first thing, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will already know, but can you just, for anybody who's not certain, can you first of all say what the GWCT does? Yeah, that's very kind, George. So, you know, what do we do? We've got 65 full-time scientists that are out monitoring in the countryside and writing up the evidence in peer-reviewed scientific literature. And the whole point of that is not being able to just being able to identify where issues and problems are, but also how to mitigate and address them. And we started as an organization you know, 80 odd years ago off the back of ICI or Ely cartridges, as it was then, wanted to understand about the fluctuations in the gray partridge uh, population, because that was the primary quarry species at the time. So the origins of applied ecological research in the UK and across Europe actually started from a commercial interest and within the sporting community and, and times moved on and you can fill in the gaps in between then. And, and so and the GWCT is Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. So for the last you know 30 odd years, uh, it's been a charity. You know, prior to that, it was started originally by ICI and it was a straight you know, commercial research station trying to understand how they could actually increase and stabilize the, the wild bird populations. It was also the place and the, the staff and the advisors that actually worked out you know, the, how to release pheasants the way that we now know uh, into the countryside. And it was called the Fording Bridge uh, Release System. And this was really, it was born off the back of the advent of uh, modern poultry techniques or modern at the time. So poultry foods and using the heat lamps and being able to look after the chicks. I mean, it was the breakthrough in technology was available then, which then allowed uh, pheasants uh, to be released the way that, that we now do. So the whole concept of, of having a release pen, that was worked out and established uh, in Fording Bridge. So Andrew, in, given that this is the conservation episode, I think conservation in general is a a highly debated term and it comes people come at it from many different angles i'm sort of putting you on the spot here but what's the gwct definition of conservation or how do you see conservation as a definition so we probably need to appreciate that everything that that happens in in the countryside all land uses have an impact on nature and on on wildlife and it really it's it's conservationist primary responsibility to work with people that are doing things in the countryside to try and mitigate and trying to leave the countryside a better place as a result of whatever's just happened. Now within the sporting community for those that go shooting actually those are very closely aligned and probably is not another economic land use in the countryside which can beat shooting for what it can deliver. What we're really looking for uh, from a conservation perspective is that net gain. So whatever you do, there will be some harm. So immediately around in the vicinity of a release pen, you will change the ecology and the shrubs around that pen. But overall, the wood and the farm will benefit if people are following best practice and sort of following that through. That's really interesting. And it actually sort of leads me on to one of the things that I noted down to ask you about, which is, could it be said that by being a shoot, 
just by existing as a shoot that you are doing conservation is it is it as simple as that in terms if, of shooting or if, if is you there were a... if you were running a shoot and following best practice and by best practice i mean what's in the code of good shooting best practice then most definitely you would because you're actually putting in uh, the additional habitat you're doing the habitat management you're opening up the woods so you're creating the rides and letting the light in that's really important for wildlife having a, a dense wood with very little light coming in is no good at all it'll have a little bit of additional wildlife and shrub layer around the edge but what you want is these big wide rides and they probably need the the width of the ride is about one and a half times the height of the trees around it in order to let the light in. Now, a shoot would do that because you create the openings uh, for the guns and also you create these sunny glades that the pheasants like to go in and dry out on. But that is really important for wildlife in the wood. And so that's why you then get an uplift in other species and everything from the, from the butterflies all the way through to the, the woodland bird species, which benefit you know, from opening up that wood. So yes, literally running the shoot in a proper way creates that, that additional wildlife and all the additional feed which is put out in those hoppers also benefits you know, other songbirds as well. So, but it also needs to be managed and done and fed correctly because obviously we want to try and minimize the things which we wouldn't want to assist another pest like rats. So that's why it has to so, be done. But properly. what you've what you've essentially described is is actually required to run a good shoot. If you're going to run a really good shoot, you need to be doing all that sort of stuff. So it's not even just best practice, although obviously that's the easy way of defining it. But just to run a good shoot, you are adding value. Absolutely. So and it's no coincidence that when you go and visit a farm or farms which have shoots on them, you typically find that the hedges are better managed and maintained because actually someone's looking after them. You've got the cover crop strips that have been put in, this is an integral part of the shoot, but actually other wildlife is benefiting from those two. And likewise, the wood itself. I think the bit where we need to be careful is about being honest about the numbers and densities of birds being released you know, per hectare mm, of pen. Yeah. So if you follow, and the reason I emphasize about the best practice is if you follow the best practice, you will mitigate against the known problems that arise from releasing and so and you will maximize the benefits so if you stray away from that then you actually you're making it harder and harder for the shoot to be able to produce that net gain for wild so you mentioned net gain there and this is something that i think we as a community are talking about a lot more and obviously you and i personally we've had a lot of conversations about net gain and i've been talking to roger draycott at the gwct about it as well and i i think this is i think this is crucial in the future we've talked about net biodiversity calculator it's obviously a huge project that's going to be required to actually get this to reality but maybe you could explain a little bit about that and 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 really what we're getting at here yeah, Chris, you're right. This is not unique just to shooting. So in the government's 25-year plan for the environment, all the way through that, it keeps talking about net gain. And it's really important. Otherwise, you stifle all progress in the countryside. You can't do anything because, as I said at the beginning, you've only got to put a dog on a lead and walk across a field. That has a negative impact to some degree, even just your presence of being there. So you have to decide that you're going to go and make sure that you go for the net gain. And 
So we know, for example, that immediately around a pheasant pen, you actually have a change in the nutrients in the soil because the presence of the birds and their droppings on the ground. So that will alter it. So what you need to do is make sure that, that you concentrate that in one area and then you maximize all the other benefits that come from it so that you can net that off again, one against I'm so the excited by the idea of this sort of online calculator. And I think just so, so everyone's aware of where we're getting at here, what I'd like to see from a guns on pegs point of view going forward is a way of being able to tell if a shoot is actually net well, neutral or net positive, because obviously it's the shoots that are net negative that we actually need to actively go and do something about because they're the most difficult to defend. And so if we can try and build something into this on guns on pegs, I think I really do think we're onto something because this is stuff that we just couldn't do 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So we've been back and mined through all our, our data and the early concept models of this are now are now developed so this would enable people to be able to just go online uh, and key in the details about their shoot and effectively it will give them a awesome. score and that's important because it allows you and i to be able to go online and see how you can adjust the numbers on your shoot and what impact it would have and whether it actually lifts your shoot above the quality line and then how much further it would lift it if you did it so the kind of numbers that you're talking about are things like uh acreage or cover crop um yes. woodland management type stuff yep. that kind of yep. stuff and then it spits out a number and goes you're all good or tweak this yeah but it also would enable you to be able to think what well, if if i wanted to get it to another level what would i actually have to do in order to so is it that i should you know, double the number of rides or should it be I, I double the amount of cover crop? You know, what, what gives me the better, if you like, return on the investment for, the, for what I'm doing across this piece of ground? And I think that that's quite exciting because it allows people to be able to think this one through and to appreciate that it is not just down to one simple thing. So there's a tendency to think it's just about the cover crops or it's just about predator control um, or it's just about feeding because you know, that's often, you know, we all do it. Conservation and, and running a shoot in particular is complex and difficult. And so we all simplify it because that's human nature. And you try to simplify it to such an extent that actually it's no longer really representing the situation. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, so this, this, this sort of intrinsic link between shooting and conservation is one that I think the shooting community is pretty well up to speed on. But outside of our community, it's often misconceived, I think. So is what's the, the misconception about that relationship that you come across that most frustrates you, most annoys you? I don't know about uh, frustrates or annoys, but I suppose is that people conflating the issues. So someone may feel uncomfortable about the act of somebody going shooting, which is, which is separate from, if you like, looking at the activity, which is all the conservation benefit after so it's important that you pull those two apart and that's why we need to make sure that we've got more people involved and going out and, and looking at shoots within within our community so shoots themselves you know how often in the summer do they invite uh, the village or the community out to come and have a look at what they're actually doing perhaps have a barbecue talk them around and don't forget these are the community around you are the people which hear you shooting or uh, in the, in the mm. winter through the season uh, they don't really know what you're doing their knowledge of gamekeeping will be very very limited um, but if you've got the opportunity as we do here in the local shoot is to invite people come out and actually see what we're doing and let us talk to you about it 
then that helps you know to take people forward a little bit more and appreciate what you're doing because they assume that all you're doing is just shooting they don't appreciate that all through the summer and all through the spring you've been busy doing things and actually been running work parties throughout the year you know just for those few days that actually that you've that you actually it's so shoot. true and i think the, the this whole sort of emotive nature of shooting is such an important point because obviously the money that comes from that pays for a lot of this privately funded conservation, doesn't it? And it's very difficult as you, you see with the whole debate in Africa over trophy hunting and the rest of it, you know, it's such a difficult subject to get your head around and so important that it happens in a way. And I, and I think what I'm getting at here is that the science can get lost because of that emotive nature of shooting. And I think the hen harrier brood management scheme is actually a perfect example of this because it's been a real success and, I've seen many graphs that you've posted with big upticks of fledgling chicks and all the rest of it. Yet it kind of doesn't seem to matter how successful these things are, or what the science says that they just get knocked back. And, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah. So this is again, a bit like we talked earlier about the heather burning. It becomes a very, very polarized issue. So it is astonishing that actually the brood management scheme itself in terms of recovering the hen harriers, as part of the DEFRA plan, you know, has actually gone ahead. I mean, this is a technique which has been used in France by conservationists to protect Montague's harriers from uh, you know, on arable farms. And yet, uh, try and suggest that you should use it on a grouse moor, and suddenly it's seen as an alien concept, and people taking the idea to court that it's unprecedented and isn't really conservation at all. And and so yes, there are, you know ten- tensions ride high. But if you look at it. From the government's perspective, it's got an obligation to recover the species. The hen harrier numbers in England are the highest uh, they've been in, in decades. You can attribute that to all sorts of things, but clearly part of it has to be you know, the current effort and the, and the brood management plan, which has actually seen hen harriers nesting on grouse moors. Now, clearly, there's further to go, but it's almost childish to ignore the, the current successes. It really is. And, and all you're doing is alienating. So just before we go into that, maybe you could give a quick overview on the brood management scheme, what actually happens, because I don't know how many of our listeners read into this, but just a very quick overview on why why this is so contentious and you know and, and how it works. Everything to do with hen harrows is, is, is never simple. Conservation is never straightforward. But if you were to go back, uh, you know, the early, what the lessons that were learned 20 years ago, because there was a, originally a claim 20 years ago, which said, actually, uh, this conflict between hen harriers and the interests of the grouse moor is an artificial construction. Actually, a few hen harriers pottering around the grouse moor would never really be an issue. And if you read Mark Avery's autobiography, he's very honest about that. And he says, actually, actually, that was RSPB thinking at the time. And in actual fact, at uh, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust and Dick Potts was leading the organisation then, actually, there wasn't any evidence to be able to support the claim that was being made by gamekeepers. And so actually the decision was taken to go and actually study this and try and get to the bottom of it. And that's the origins of the original studies at Langham Moor. So this is on the... Uh, on the Scottish borders and uh, the hen harrier numbers you know went from two pairs to 22 pairs but actually the grouse shooting became uneconomic uh, five gamekeepers lost their jobs so on the 
the Langamore estate. The gamekeepers left. The hen harrier population crashed back down to two pairs. And then it went through the wilderness years before you then move on to what's referred to as Langham 2. So that demonstrated that one study, and it's called the Joint Raptor Study, that demonstrated that if hen harrier numbers built up on a grouse moor, it would make it uneconomic and then you would lose all the other conservation benefits too and actually nobody would win because not even the hen harriers would win because the numbers would go back down because there wouldn't be enough food for the hen harriers despite there being the optimum habitat and that is that was a turning point and and mark avery talks about that in his book as well and he acknowledges how wrong the rsvb were and he uses that that phrase and then fast forward to today now that we know that it is an issue how do you explain to a gamekeeper that you need to have these hen harriers on your moor but the numbers if they build up to you know high level we will have to spread them out because actually hen harriers they nest colonially so they they're ground nesting birds ground nesting birds aren't stupid if they nest in the same area they're better and able to defend themselves and arguably if a fox comes along it might get one nest but it won't get all of them and so that's why other species include do, do the same thing so the the idea is that if you have a second nest hen harrier nest within 10 kilometers of the first one then if you want to it's not you can request uh, under a, a license from natural england that the the chicks or the eggs uh, will be collected on the second nest uh, they'll be reared uh, in captivity and then when they fledge uh, they'll then be released back onto a neighbouring piece of moor with the same habitat uh, within the same special protection area. Um, and this is exactly what they've been doing in France and it's been very effective. And so far, for the last couple of years, has worked very well uh, in the North. I can see why people are frustrated with the idea that we would then intervene because it's kind of protecting the interests of shooting and that's the underlying point here. But going back to the original Langham study that you talk about, you can't argue with that. You just simply can't argue with it. So, so who does? So I suppose one of the points being made is the hen harrier numbers should build up to a level which is undefined. So nobody agrees quite what that should be. And then when you get to that level, then you should start doing the types of management I've just been talking about. But that it's hard to see how you'd unlock that. And the government is quite clear in its plan. And this is, again, the same logic is mirrored in, it, in the 25 year plan for the environment, that you must have the environmental element alongside economic land use. And so it is legitimate to have, a, you know, to, to allow these activities to happen concurrently because one is paying for mm. the other. And, you know, if, you didn't have these grouse moors and the moor owners, you know, had resisted, you know, they're only there because those moor owners resisted the bribes from previous government, you know, to carpet them in trees um, or to use them for agriculture. So it, it's easy to forget that actually some of our best open moorland heather habitat is where it has actually been looked after for the interests of grouse shooting. You, we can't we can't ignore that as a, as a point. And it's highly likely, for example, in Scotland, the vast tracts of land you know, will soon, of the uplands, will be covered in trees because there's a very, very ambitious uh, tree planting target in Scotland. It's mad, isn't it? Such a 
oh, it's just such a debate. It's all it's never going to go away, is it? <laughs> well, I've got a question around that debate, and Andrew, I really enjoy seeing the quite pithy and occasionally slightly acid letters that you write to various newspapers <laughs> in response to stories or claims or whatever. So I wanted to ask, is that quite a fun part of your job, writing those letters? I do. I, I think trying to, when you're trying to, to write a letter, I find I do find it a challenge, uh, George, because what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to get a fact across. You have to be making a point and there has to be an element of humour. So it has to appeal to someone that is not really not interested in about this at all, but actually it's something uh, that, that I suppose warms their soul as well as a, as a fact that they might learn and a point that you're trying to make. It is extremely difficult to, to achieve that in, you know, 100, 150 words, because that's, that's what we all need to be doing. And when I say we all, I think all of us, you know, should spend more time you know, writing to papers, whether it be national papers or regional, local papers, because, you know, a, a national paper might hang around or, or stay in a house for a day, whereas your regional or local paper will probably be, be there for a week. And, you know, people should uh, should respond and, and make points in there and shouldn't be afraid. And that's one of the reasons behind the original, uh, the idea of writing uh, the book which we produced a couple of years ago called The Knowledge, um, which actually sums up all the points which could be used uh, when articulating or responding to issues. And in fact, uh, I carry a copy of, of this book because that is all you need to use because all of the statements in there, you know, are, have been checked and it's got the references as to the scientific literature as to where those facts come from. So in the event that it subsequently get challenged, you're able to respond and say, actually, I can tell you exactly which paper this refers to. And people appreciate that because people like to know where the facts came from and they like to be able to go and read the paper themselves. If they're deeply interested in a particular subject, go and read it. Might well, I'm particularly on social media, come back again saying, well, I've been away. I read that again. So now I've got another question. That's so, so the knowledge is, I mean, I love the knowledge. It's an awesome little book, but you, you also then created the credited game shot test didn't you and I was going to ask you and I'm almost tearing you up here <laughs> but I was going to ask you and I think there's more I want to try and think of a few things and answer this question but what what is it that every gun can do to promote conservation and good practice or or just generally off you know as a takeaway from from your work with the GWCT? I think it's very important that all of those who are involved in shooting whether they are uh, beating picking up or carrying a gun that they know what questions to ask about a shoot and what's going on, and they should be able to appreciate and understand the answers which they get. There is plenty, you know, as with everything in life, there's room for improvement. But some of the people which have got the greatest influence to drive that change are the guns themselves and their buying days or buying into syndicates. And they should feel free to ask those questions and they should know what answers they, they get back. And if they could just learn a few key points, and in the book, The Knowledge, it does actually gives you questions to ask. Um, so that, it, you know, don't be afraid. These are the questions on this, which you should ask at a shoot. It's really interesting. So I've got a, a question. Um, I know that the last year or so has been tricky for GWCT in a, in a funding context. And we've tried to do our bit at Guns on Pegs to help out in that. 
in the US, hunting and fishing licenses generate an absolutely enormous amount of income for state fish and wildlife departments, nearly all of which gets then ploughed back into conservation and habitat management and all that kind of stuff. Is that something that you would be in favour of in the UK to, to, to try and fund the kind of work that you guys do? George, that's a, a very good question. I think we probably need to take one step further back and ask us ask ourselves why that is. And, and actually, the UK is very different from the States and from Europe in general, um, because in, in other countries, the game is owned by the state, the state regulates it, and the state controls all activity. In the UK, thanks to the Magna Carta, the game is owned by the landowner. So it is the landowner's responsibility to be able to regulate what happens, and that's why if you want to carry uh, a gun across a piece of ground, you need the landowner's permission. Now, everybody listening to this podcast would say, well, isn't that normal? And the answer is, well, no, it's not. If you've got a hunting license in France, it entitles you to be able to walk across someone else's land and shoot the game that you've been allocated. Um, or, albeit, you you mustn't be within a certain distance of a residential property. So, you know, from a safety perspective. So we have a very, very different relationship here. And so I think we should probably recognise that and, and, and go with what we've got. Certainly the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, if it was in any other country, wouldn't be a, an independent charity. It would be run by the state and it would be funded through a licensing scheme, which is what you, well, effectively what you see in other countries. So when you hear people say that in other countries, you know, shooting is, is regulated more and actually there's no regulation in the UK, what they're forgetting is it's a completely different system and so the regulation works in a slightly different way in terms of landowner responsibility and giving permissions. Yeah, but it's really interesting that if the, I mean, it's a very, very good point that if the game is privately owned, then the conservation should also be privately funded. I, I'd never thought of it yeah. in those terms. It's a and really, and really good point. And you've also got to think about then the motive for, for looking after it. So if, and we know from, particularly for work with people that are working desperately hard and to look after their great wild grey partridge populations. Um, it's hard to, you know, they are doing that in part and some purely because they just love seeing them, but others are doing it because, you know, once or twice a year, they may, if the numbers are high enough, they may shoot a few in terms of the surplus birds. It's hard to see the motive for, for those people to do that if actually all they'd be doing is doing it for other people to come along and shoot. Oh, entirely. So, it's, it's, yeah. so we've got to sort of think this, think it, think it through a bit in terms of the, you know, the motive and the engagement. And you could follow it to its logical conclusion where if you looked at, uh, say, the Capricale and the, and the remaining remnant population, the Capricale uh, in Scotland, uh, it, it's, it couldn't be more protected as a species. We're not allowed to, to shoot it. Originally, it was a monitorium, and now that legislation was passed, you know, millions of pounds have been spent in terms of conserving it. The population is still falling. And arguably, if you could still shoot them, I think maybe some of the bigger states would have lent their keepers across to be able to help controlling uh, some of the predator numbers 
in order to be able to get the numbers up so that maybe one day someone's grandchild may be able to shoot a Capricale. I know that if we put Capricale days in Scotland in our game card newsletter, <laughs> it would blow up. It would be, everybody'd be all over it like a rash. <laughs> it, does, it does beg the question, you know, why, you know, why break that link uh, if, it, if it provides such a huge motivation? And we see that as well uh, with black grouse populations where you know, people are going to enormous effort to be able to help them in allocating resource uh, and keepering effort to be able to protect, uh, if you like, their, their, those lecking sites. And that, you know, it really does and can make a difference. And if we break that link, we need to be, we need to be really careful. And, and there's one thing which we've not discussed at all, and obviously we're concentrating on the conservation but we shouldn't forget you know, the importance of the, the social element of all of this, and that is becoming increasingly clear. So we recently did quite an interesting piece of work uh, in Wales where actually we were asking people, what would be the impact on you personally if uh, there were to be further shooting restrictions? And actually, it's absolutely fascinating reading. We've, we've produced it you know, as a publication, and actually that is now going to... To, to politicians in Wales to make it very clear they need to be careful. And the significance of that is in Wales, it's a very good piece of legislation, but there's an additional well-being act in Wales, which is a legal obligation to look after people's well-being. And we can't ignore that in some you know, communities where this is a really challenging issue, um, removing the sporting element would have a big impact. There's the really interesting news the other day that fishing is now being prescribed on the NHS to treat depression and anxiety. And, and we've looked before at the um, at the physical and mental health benefits of, of shooting and, and the impacts that it can have there. And I think that this is a really nice way to round off the podcast and come on to the final segment, which is where we ask you to imagine your Desert Island shooting, your last ever day shooting. You know, where would you be going? Importantly, who would you have with you? Uh, what would you be doing? Uh, all that kind of stuff. So, have you have you got an idea about what that might be? Yeah, absolutely. You were you were talking about you know in the, in the past you, know, you being up at, at Glenelg. For me, I would go further up again. Uh, I'd take a, a, a team of guns. It'd probably be quite a lot of them would actually be from my family and other important parts of my life. But we'd, we'd actually go up, get the ferry, and we'd go over to the Isle of Lewis spend a couple of days i'd actually we're talking just now about fishing i'd actually like to spend a couple of days fishing but nothing calms you down more than a few days of fly fishing <laughs> you, get, you get, actually get to appreciate you know what's going on in the world just what's in the countryside uh, just spending a few days we all live very busy lives now just slow right down for a couple of days and then after that after a couple of days staying in a lodge together and then set off and maybe spend a couple of days uh, shooting snipe over pointers. That is, uh, I think that is ultimately is a true sporting experience. It'll probably be uh, late August, early September. So it'll be a lovely warm day. So everybody's happy. And even the old folk will be nice and warm. <laughs> We're just walking across a piece of ground and watching pointers working is again, and, and working with dogs is such a fantastic experience. Do you know what? And I, I really absolutely love, love about the last five minutes I've been listening to where this where that conversation went. And it just showed 
the clear link between the conservation side and the social side of what we do because of the value because of you know how this all comes about why people do it why they invest time in it and they are so intrinsically linked and i think it just it's one of the things that makes shooting so amazing it's so much more complicated than people first realize when they start talking about it it's been lovely to hear yeah it, it would be nothing without the people and it would be nothing without the countryside i completely agree with you chris really nice Andrew, it's been a really, really interesting chat. Really lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andrew. And I, I must say, we can't finish this podcast without highlighting that the GWCT are in real need of support. We're delighted that we put a bit of a push out on our Guns on Pegs email to members recently, and it raised, I think, around £10,000 or something, which was absolutely lovely. And, and I, you know, if you're listening to this and you'd like to donate to this wonderful charity, um, please just, well, go to their website, gwct.org.uk, and that would be awesome. Here, here. That's very kind. So thanks once again to Andrew for joining us and thanks to everyone for listening and coming back for series three. Before we go, as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs shooting sock garters. Secure your invitation to the party. You can do all of that by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve, getting in touch to let us know where you're listening or by telling us how you might be able to contribute to the party. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes we'll send you some garters your invitation to the party we'll look forward to seeing you there until the next episode thanks very much for listening and goodbye well i hope you get something useful out of it